Once upon a time, in a faraway land. What are fairy stories? The strange and wondrous place where nothing is as it seems. Magic mirror on the wall. Who is the fairest? Fairy is a perilous land. Before she found herself falling down what seemed to be a very deep well. It is the place you visit when you dream. A world of myth and magic. When the clock began to turn the Witches, welcome to Storybook, Sacred Lore of Witchcraft. Today we have a special guest, Michael Herkes, the Glam Witch, is joining us to embark on our series of discussions regarding the tale Cinderella. Michael, uh, how could you introduce yourself to everyone? Hi, uh, first and foremost, thanks so much for having me on here. Um, I uh, live in Chicago. Uh, I've been a practicing witch for um, a little over 20 years at this point, um, solitary practitioner and uh, kind of stepped out back into the public eye um, in uh, 2017, uh, started writing for Witch Way Magazine, which led me into writing my first book, The Glam Witch, which is all about my devotion to Lilith and what I call the great Lilithian arcane mysteries. Um, and then I wrote an additional, oh my gosh, I think five five or six other books um, and had a new one that came out this year called Glamcraft, which explores glamour magic as a whole um, and working on a new title for Llewellyn, um, which involves uh, glamour and astrology. So I'm, I'm just a little writing fiend over here. So uh, author, astrologer, tarot reader, glamour witch, intuitive stylist, all of that fun stuff. Thank you. And we have returning panelists. A.B. Rodriguez from A.B.'s Witches Journal, and Dave Gaddy, the Weathered Wise Man. Hey, Hello, hi. welcome back. Um, if, if, if you guys are okay, I'm going to go ahead and jump into the story because I know we have a lot to cover. Cinderella, we'll start by covering the Grimm tale as published in 1812. The Brothers Grimm uh, cited an unnamed female patient at the Elizabeth Hospital in Marburg as their source. Um, some Sometimes this is also attributed to Dorothy Vyman. Um, they, in their notes, however, they list having collected over 20 variations from countries across Europe. And the title is always a variation on something meaning a dirty girl or the dirty girl. The most relevant to our discussion, I think, are Charles, Perrault, uh, Charles Perrault's Cendrillon, which was published in 1697 and was predominantly based on Basile's Cenerentola from 1634 in Italy. Now, these tales, there is no single interpretation that can ever encompass the whole of the tale. They're not simple allegories, which is one reason why today we still find these tales so interesting. They can't be explained as a simple allegory. Um, I think some of the most popular tales, I think, are also the, the most enigmatic. So with that, Cinderella being so enigmatic, we're going to take a few episodes to look at various interpretations and threads of folklore that weave throughout this tale. And with that, I might 
jump onto some of those ideas in our discussion today and then kind of back away because uh, um, to leave some of those subjects to be discussed in further discussions and further episodes. Before we start going through specifics of the story, what was everyone's initial reaction to rereading this tale? Uh, Michael, could we could we start with you? Ouch. <laughs> That's my initial reaction. Yeah. No, um, I remember back in high school having interpretation and just the, the goriness of and craziness of cutting off your toe or a chunk of your foot um, to make yourself fit into something in order to get it. It's, it's actually very interesting. And I think it really highlights kind of even to a degree the negative aspect of like fashion, um, beauty in our modern world. Um, the cutting that people do with plastic surgery, the, um, the, you know, how to, how can you readjust your body to conform and be a part of, of fashion in a way really kind of highlights the dark side of it. So that was one thing that like really highlighted me. And then also just, again, the omission of like the fairy godmother that we have, but instead we have nature and we have, um, which I love because it adds a very real elemental, uh, not necessarily elemental, but a, a, a real quality of witchcraft, you know, working and communing with nature um, to kind of help you and, and, and move you through things um, as a form of magic. So that'd be my two pieces. Ironically, I do remember that the first version of the story that I got to read, no, to learn about was the Disney version. Um, it was a big shocker for me to get to read the paroled version and then the Grimm's uh, version. And I see like the stepsister cutting her toes and everything. I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah, not the Disney as version. <laughs> I enjoy both versions as well. And I would say Disney's is rather faithful to the earlier French Cendrillon. And, um, there's a great scene at the beginning of the 90s film Ever After where the where the grand dame invites the brothers Grimm to her chalet and then she says I was very disturbed by your version of the little cinder girl. <laughs> uh, I also do remember having read a Chinese version as well and um based on what I was reading, actually, this story backtracks quite a, a lot. But something for me that always, like, seems to shine, whichever what version is, is that we are having this sweet, innocent lady affected by these evil characters and how, in one way or another, even though she is, be, is under attack, practically, and under hate, um, she kept true to herself even under the guise and disguise of her <laughs> um of the costume and just going out and having fun in the ball with the prince or whichever that character might be is in that version she's kept true to herself she's well connected with nature a person with good feelings and at the end of the day she has like that positive good happy ending uh I think that the that's the major thing that like stands out for me. Uh, how honest she can she is to herself and to her family and to her love of her mom or dad, depending on the version of the story. And even though people do damage her and attack her, um, it's a very um, nice archetype. Uh, 
very positive, uh, practically like a major force of good. I think that that's one of the things that always stand out for me when it comes to talk about the Cinderella. Oh, yes. You mentioned the various uh, other other versions throughout history, A.B. Um, there's a wonderful episode of a show called Grim Reading. They recently released a episode on Cinderella where they read a version published in 1857. I probably won't read that version. I, I've recorded a version published in 1812. They talk about the various folktale threads throughout history that have come to combine to become the tale that we know as Cinderella. So I'll link that in our show notes because I think it's a really interesting listen. And for our purpose of discussion, we'll limit ours to, to the, the last few, the German and French most likely. Some interesting differences between the 1812 version and the 1857. There's a larger role given in the later version to both the stepmother and Cinderella's father. He becomes a main antagonist, whereas he's mostly missing from the 1812 version. Um, the birds have a slightly different role, and the tree that Cinderella goes to pray to now there's a bird in the tree that gives her the dress and her wishes and things like that. There's some many smaller differences. I think those are the main differences between the two versions published by, by the Brothers Grimm. The, as mentioned, the Grimm found that the variations across Europe all had a variation on the title of the Dirty Girl. So we get this idea of the fallen woman, the tortured or blamed woman, um, the dark goddess like a Babylon. And with that, we can see how that, that um, archetype is spread across Cinderella, the stepmother, the deceased mother, and perhaps even the fairy godmother in the French version. A lot of times dark goddesses and dark goddess energy just kind of gets like really maligned as evil or malicious or, you know, not like too taboo for society, you know, in, in a way dirty um uh, by association so i mean i think that that's definitely something to kind of like look at and and kind of connect to with, with symbolism and with that there's a, uh, an abundance of bird imagery in the tale where um cinderella speaks to the birds they help her she either hides or watches the ball from being in a pigeon coop almost as if she is a bird. And towards the end, the prince actually spreads black pitch on the, on the stairs, which was an archaic way of, an unhumane way of capturing birds back in the day. And you can still see this in like um, rodent traps. Now, how does that idea of the bird imagery and, and being part bird play into the lore of dark goddesses, Michael? Um, so, I mean, it, it definitely hits home with Lilith, um, who I've been a devotee of for a very long time. And, uh, you know, Lilith is um, is heavily connected to the owl, but birds just in kind of general, if we look back at some of the different uh, stories, such as, you know, her connection with Gilgamesh and the Gilgamesh and the Halupu tree story. Um, but either way, I mean, some of the things that you just, just hit on really hit home for me too, where it's like she hides, she kind of watches from 
from the side. And if we look at like all of Lilith's mythologies along the way and all of her stories, it was a lot of um, taking the back seat, hiding in society, um, kind of remaining true to herself at the same time and not really adjusting, but um, but be waiting in the shadows to like come and reemerge in like more of a modern society today. Um, so I kind of can see that uh, definitely. Um, and then also, I mean, there's an element in this Grimm's fairy tale one where we have the two white pigeons, which to me, when I hear white pigeon, I just think dove. Um, and there's an element of like Aphrodite or Venus to me, since doves were um, part of her nature as well. But even if we get into like the fact that like at the end, you know, these doves pluck out the eyes of the, the sisters, it's just so... Haha, <laughs> like I love it. it. It's dark. It definitely has that dark goddessy imagery and stuff where it's, you know, it's not going to be lovey and fluffy and love and light. It's like, you know, the bad people are going to have bad shit done to them. It's like, um, so, so yes, I can definitely see some congruency with dark goddess material there as well. And um, there's, is there a queer aspect, would you say, to the mysteries of Lilith? Um, definitely. And I think, you know, what, what Lilith really represents to me is she represents sexuality for pleasure over procreation. Um, I think that's a lot of the reasons why she was considered to be a child killer or um, kind of like this oogie boogie person when it comes to like sex. Um, because, uh, you know, she goes back, if we go all the way back in time to the beginning of her mythology, she was the handmaiden to the goddess Ishtar or Inanna um, in her sacred sex temples. And, um, and you know, as culture kind of changed and, you know, patriarchal religions came up and sex was more kind of used as a, a procreation tool um, rather than like feeling and exploring it and, and like loving the pleasure aspect of it. Um, That's, you know, that was one of the reasons why Lilith was so um, just kind of considered to be evil. So from a queer perspective, I mean, like all any queer individual, try as we might, we're not going to be procreating through our sexual activities. So I definitely see that element of queerness in um, in in Lilith's work, also with her just being um, uh, a spirit that really exemplifies equality for all, especially you know those that are considered to be the outcast, those that are considered to be which again here Cinderella she's considered the outcast. She's not you know part of the prim and proper you know stepsisters and and this stepmother you know angle and stuff like that. So. Um, yeah, that's that's what I'd say to to that. That's great, and one of the reasons I ask is because in in this initial um, in the initial published version of Cinderella from eighteen twelve, the stepsisters are the main antagonists. But when uh, Grimm republished the story in the years uh, leading up to eighteen fifty seven, they made the antagonists more the stepmother and even Cinderella's father. So now we have the idea of the patriarchy coming in and um and casting down cinderella but also this idea of conformity versus authenticity which i think really speaks to our queer experience oh totally and i think that even in and of itself is an aspect of the patriarchy um you know like just repressing any kind of creativity, repressing anything that represents beauty and just enjoying nature and things like that. 
um, even, you know, to a degree, the the stepmother and the stepsisters, how they are represented and what they represent and their overall goals. It's it's patriarchal in the sense that it's, you know, let me hurry up and be the queen. Let me hurry up and be, it's not necessarily even for the power, I feel like. So much of it is just, oh my God, this prince, you know, the prince is just, you know, that's where it's all at. Let's, oh my gosh, you know, it's all a man. Let's Let's do everything for this man, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> and she never really mentions the prince so much. She wants to go to the ball. She wants to be herself, and you know, I relate to that. I, you know, I just want to go to the ball and be seen and be pretty and look cute. You know, screw the man. <laughs> I think often um, people tend to look down on the character or the story and almost take a stance of like victim blaming. Because we do have a character who's being abused, who's who's being oppressed, and she actually does go out of her way to have um, uh, agency over the capabilities that she's able, such as her own mind, her choice, her faith, her practice. And as we see, she does end up creating her own fate, uh, taking matters into her hands by turning to magic. When, for example, when you were asking about the representation, like this archetype of figure of dark goddess, honestly, I do not have too much uh, experience with Lilith, but I have a couple of divines um, with uh, Hecate or Hecate or Hecate, which, whichever pronunciation you prefer. Um, and ironically, uh, Ekate receives many names, some very loving and caring and healing, and some others dark, and like Remo, for example, which practically are terrifying and full of horror. And at the very beginning, I was mentioning that uh, Cinderella has like this essence or um, personification of like utmost good, almost virginal-like, uh, pure, saint-like. And her stepmother and stepsisters, and some cases, depending on the version, even her uh, the, the stepfather of uh, was um, ruining this image, this essence by opp uh, oppressing her and making her take care of like the house duties and making her sleep in front of the uh, the chimney, uh, practically in front of the heart of of the. You know what I mean, <laughs> and uh, we we still can see that certain dark goddesses, or at least the one that I have experienced with Hecate, um, she can present both in a dirty and in a clean-like way, depending of what area um, or yeah, she's going to work with you. Uh, so yeah, I, I find very interesting that if we are going to start looking at some dark goddess archetypes being reflected in Cinderella, we can also take in consideration that whether in the high or in the low, we are seeing a character that is um, in its in essence, she hasn't done any damage to anyone and she's still being oppressed. So that on that side, uh, I love where <laughs> Michael said, yeah, I just want a night out. Uh, th the truth is that that's what she wanted. She just wanted to go to the ball. And I love, I, I, I love a lot how we have like the fairy godmother type of element now, but at the very beginning, or at least in the Grimm's fairy tale, and I think that I'm going to focus more on that one, she was crying on her mother's 
grave. And she was petitioning to these three that grew in her mother's graves with her own tears. So we are seeing an, an element of sacrifice and pain uh, in order to receive a, a manifestation or a spell of any kind. I, I, to the point that I would like to say that there cannot be glamour without pain sort of thing. Or there cannot be glamour without sacrifice, I guess. Oh, glamour in the, in the art of magic, I mean. Well, well and AB, you hit on something that, that struck me in the thing. We're also looking at ancestor magic. And Aaron and I talked a little bit about this. Um, we're talking about when she goes to the grave and she shakes the tree. Her mother's told her, call on me when you need me. So that's the height of ancestor magic. And like you were talking about, there can't be, think about it. If you have good without pain, then you don't know that it's good. So it's just like, and Michael, you started to say something when AB highlighted the uh, no beauty without pain. Yes, I was just going to mention that from a very like uh, practical perspective. I mean, we kind of use it a lot, like that just beauty is pain. I mean, the shoes are going to hurt, the outfits might hurt, you know, the the makeup and the plucking of, of hair and shaving and all of these types of things. I mean, there's a pain element in the beauty regimes of the world. Um, and then also I love that she brought the ancestral magic because I was just thinking that too. And even just the tree itself also representing just the symbolism of the family tree um, mm -hmm. is, uh, is a really interesting connection there as well. And the tree there's a ladder to the pigeon coop. There's the flight of the birds. There's all these transcendent and ecstatic symbols, which we'll touch on on another episode. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep moving. Okay. Um, <laughs> if you want to say anything, you're you're very welcome to. But yeah, there's there's this idea of transcendence uh, that that I would like to come back to in another in another discussion. Um, I like that you mentioned uh, Aphrodite, and I have a few. Uh, I have a few fairy tale decks because this is kind of my jam, and um, a few of them have given the Cinderella as a representation of the card of the, the Empress, which which is also tied to Aphrodite. One yeah. deck um, uses the fairy godmother as the magician, which I like, which I like even more because of the magical manifestation that that and resourcefulness that the tale explains. But I, I personally have come to take the story as a narrative of the chariot card. And oh and going on with this idea of, of uh, ecstasy and transcendence uh, that'll be something that that we come to in the future um, but she is going to a festival if we even look at just like the disney version of it where the pumpkin turns into the big beautiful chariot and the carriage that yeah. takes it it's lovely yeah. and it plays into like um i'll say this too because we were, we were talking so much about glamour but like the very Hollywood standard of like glamour being an illusion. It's taking something and, and completely changing it. Um, but like real glamour magic is more creating an illusion with an A. It's alluding to something that already exists. A lot of times a, a personal confidence within you that's exuded and radiates outwards to you. But it really is a beautifully glamorous, at least the Disney one, a very glamorous uh, Hollywood um, like change i mean everything from her dress being really really cute to you know taking the the pumpkins and turning into a carriage the mice into horses and things along those lines it's um 
it's it's interesting to kind of look at that angle from it too. Yeah. Yeah. And we see her definitely turn to magic. Um, there's this idea of of counting the lentils, sortilage, or doing something that could be trans-inducing, but is also folk folklore related to spirits and vampires, like where you cast out legumes or coins because they can't cross it without counting them. So there's there's weird threads um, in that aspect of the story, but but of course this does go into um, uh, prosperity magic, abundance magic. And then whether she's working with the ancestors or a goddess in the form of a fairy godmother, she takes matters into her own hands and does arrive at the festival. Um, did you want to maybe take a moment to talk a, a bit more about the glamorous transformation and, and maybe how you work with that magically? Sure. I mean, there's a lot of different angles to, to doing it. I mean, a, a lot of it just kind of also works with, you know, I, I talk about it heavily in my uh, my new book, Glamcraft, and I and especially it, I was just at Hexfest in New Orleans and had a, a class and everyone kind of loved this angle. But I mean, with glamour magic, I think the very first component to it is um, really cultivating confidence within. And one of the aspects to do that is um, is to really kind of work with your shadow. But as magical people, I think we've kind of completely bastardized like the whole um, idea of shadow magic or what the shadow is. It's always just, you know, oh, keep praying, keep thinking negative stuff about you. And it's like, we have to do the real world work too. We have to go to therapy. We have to do these these external components to just the practicalness of, of life. So um, I definitely think that like, you know, the if we're looking at this story in particular, we see the the sisters and, and the stepmother who are just kind of always ragging on this poor girl, um, really trying to break her confidence in a way. And um, a lot of times glamour is help, you know, helps, you know, build that. And sometimes even though it does definitely does start, I think, with your internal confidence, your external confidence is a, is a way to build your internal. It's a very reciprocal energy source. So having a beautiful outfit or something that makes you feel really good. So casting her spell, if you will, where she asks the the pigeons and the doves and they they make these dresses for her and they give them to her to go off and, and do what she needs to do. I think it's a beautiful symbolism to kind of how glamour magic actually does work. Now we can also look at like it from a, a very magical perspective, gather four candles and like gold or silver or something like that, light them, you know, put your herbs or, or oils on them that represent beauty. So like, you know, you might have like orange or uh, roses or anything like that. Stand at the center of them and call upon an energy source that you want to call into. You know, there's definitely that aspect to it or even just visualization and shape shifting using, um, you know, visualization techniques to uh, morph into and create a persona of an alter ego um, that can help you get through things. I mean, in a, in a way, that's kind of also what she did here. Um, I mean, she did get this beautiful gown from birds. I hope I, I can meet those birds someday. Like I live next to this bird sanctuary. I'm gonna go out there and try to get them to make me a, a dress <laughs> so I can stop spending money. But anyways, um, that that's just kind of my angle to it. If it. Like, I always like try to look at any type of a magical practice from a very practical standpoint first, very practical magic. And um, I, I love that in this story, it is more of that. It is more how we as, as modern witches kind of would go about doing a spell and kind of taking that energy of our will and our desire and, 
and bringing that to the table. Whereas like the, the Disney version was all the glitter and the glamour of, of Hollywood illusion, if that makes sense. Well, and you were also talking about putting in the work. If you look at it, the fairy godmother didn't let Cinderella off scot-free. She That's had to go true. gather up the rats, the mice, yep. the pigeons. I mean, That's she great. had to do the work for this. That's a great thing to say, too. And I'm happy you said that because I was literally just having this conversation with somebody where it's like so many, so much today I see in witchcraft. It's it's just about like, oh, I just need something easy. Or even when I've worked, you know, on books in the past with publishers, it's like, oh, this spell has too many ingredients. What, what the fuck? Like, you know, you got to go gather the stuff. If you're listening to these like, things from your, your deities or these energy sources, it's like you're being told what to go and get. And I think everyone just wants a very easy, quick fix. And that's not how magic works. You can't have, like, I really think that at some point I would, I would love to write like um, a uh, allegorical um, book that's just like 150 spells that you can do with nothing but salt and Splenda, because that's what like everyone wants. Um, but yeah, I love it. It's like, yeah, you have to go gather the ingredients. You have to find them. That's part of the magic that's there. Um, they have to, you have to find the resources that work for you. I mean, even in this one, it's, it's, you know, going out and talking to the birds. Um, it's, you know, the lentils that are there, the, these things hold power, these things hold, hold magic to them. Um, and so I like that it's, it's cognizant in the storyline of, of, you know, these materials or ingredients hold magical power to them. Well, and even so with the fairy godmother, she wasn't, even the magician had to do the work. She's the one that cleaned out the pumpkin. Yeah. So it's not like she just waved the wand and it was done. Mm -hmm. I love that the things used are creatures of the night, rats and mice and lizards. It's not like, okay, we're making this out of a ring of a garland of flowers and a little glitter. Well, That's and also, perfect. if you think about it, too, she used things that were considered dirty in that time. Yes. So that's, a, I mean, going back to the talk about, you know, the dark goddess and how she's there. I mean, uh, you know, again, dark goddesses are, are generally associated with the outcasts, the creatures of the night, the the non-pretty fluffy things. And so being able to take those and and they do represent beauty. There is a beautiful aspect to all of these things. Um but uh, being able to take those and turn them into something that's even more stunningly beautiful, um, I think that's there's a lot of power there. There's like just in anyone just kind of even listening and knowing that and, and applying that to your real life is um, it's a really powerful tool. Those few elements refer to the the French tale, but in the in the Grim uh, in the Grim story. The, the dress comes down from, from the tree on her mother's grave. And what's interesting to me about that one is she gets uh, two nights worth of dresses. And the first night is uh, pearls and silver so to make her shine like the moon. And the second night is gold so that she glitters like the sun. So we have this like Aradia symbolism where she becomes the daughter of both the sun and, and the moon. I love that. I didn't catch that, but fabulous. Um, I also, I, I would like to add in, in latching on the prey and yeah, what you, all of you were talking, um, especially when it comes to talk about the glamour and this element. I recently had a conversation with um, Shawon Ku. She's a writer as well. And one of the things that she mentions on her book that I think that definitely changed my practice is the glamour 
aspect. Uh, when I began my practice, again, I'm I come from a very fundamentalist Christian religion. We were finally less focused on the appearance of Christianity and more focused on behaving like a Christian. So when I start taking my first steps in witchcraft, I was focused on, I don't want to be a, like an Instagram witch more than just having the aesthetic. I want to uh, think and act as a witch. But then <laughs> I find this book where she talk about glamour. And the cool thing about it is that she says glamour is extra. We are talking about sensual um, senses, magic. We are elevating all our senses to amplify the energy of the spell that you are. Um, doing. And it puts you in, a, in practically in a state of, this is a costume that I'm wearing, I'm going to behave like it, and then I take the costume off. And that's it. So the it, she actually in her book, she uses the example of K-pop as K-pop artist using the lights, dances, senses of smell, the way that they sing, Practically, they become a character of themselves and how they elevate, elevate the music to an, another notch and how glamour magic can be like that. And just taking that in consideration, my magic changed completely because now I don't have to feel silly by putting a robe and performing a spell. I'm acting like a wizard. And the cool thing is that when Cinderella went and got her dresses, uh, she didn't wonder, okay, why these birds are bringing me dresses? Why uh, this is happening? Um, why she took the dress, she put it on, and she's like, I'm going to dance, <laughs> you know? So it was a very cool, very interesting fantasy-like thing to see how, in a way or another, she connected with that natural magic of herself because at the end of the day, she was the one that ended up dressing it. And she just went to it, you know? Um, I do feel that... And I think that I did mention this priorly. I do feel that in one way or another, Cinderella also has meets like this archetype of witch connecting with her familiars, more not only with the ancestry, um, but also the birds, uh, which is something that very common in these fantasies. We see the animals like serving people. So it's a very interesting element to be noticed the ability that that the magical person has to speak the language of the animals yes yes because yeah. of their, their their connection to their connection to nature and how we see that the people who have the who follow the values of fairy are rewarded so that is like a, a reverence for nature an animistic mindset um doing the work that you're supposed to do self-responsibility things like that I'm going to jump back in real quick and go back to what A.B. was saying about, um, you know, putting on a, a costume and things like that. I've talked about this. And again, going to like a very practical aspect of magic, there's um, a psychological term that's called enclosed cognition, which illustrates how clothing impacts our cognition and how we perceive ourselves. So it was something that kind of um, was uh, first tested and created in 2012. So it's a, it's a newer kind of a approach to thing, but they, they did it using white lab coats. And um, when someone like put on white lab coats and like went out and kind of like looked like a doctor, they received different recognition. They had doors open, like handed open for them. They 
um, you know, it, through that experiencing of, of how people are reacting to you differently, they started to start believing in themselves more and having more confidence. And so there is a real, and I always say like, like to a degree, magic is science that hasn't been proven yet. So like, to me, this was like an exciting, like, see, glamour magic is real. Like when you throw on an out, a different outfit you and you kind of embrace whatever that character is, it doesn't have to be, because some people might think like, you know, Halloween costumes or cosplay, it's just silly, it's make-believe, but it's, you know, there's really no faking glamour magic. You can't fake it. It's not illusionary because it's so dependent upon an audience and that audience has to believe it. It has to, so you have to be real within it. So it's, it's in essence, it's dressed for the job you want. Exactly. It's a, it's a, a very magical aspect of that. Yes. There's a line I'd like to hear your all thoughts on. There's a line in the 1812 uh, Grimm version. It's something like, the, the prince is happy. He found, you know, he found the woman he wants to marry. Cinderella, however, knew who knew only sadness and pain is now surrounded by splendor and joy. But when the clock turns midnight, she gets up and says goodbye. It makes a point to draw the distinction, um, uh, the opposition really between her usual existence of pain and the experience of joy and then she and then she turns from it. She runs away, and in and I'm reading that as she's not yet able to allow herself to fully experience that joy. She still has the limiting mindset, um, um, where is something I was talking about recently. She, she still has a limiting mindset, perhaps even a. Uh, something like an imposter phenomenon, where now she's wearing the she she's wearing the clothes, but she's not necessarily um, uh, internalized the feeling of being a princess yet. So she has to run. Yeah, that's a great mm -hmm. point. And and I and I I wonder um, I I wonder if if yeah and if 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 y'all are able to speak on that and speak on that as like our magical persona as well, if you have anything to say. I mean, I definitely get it from at least being an author and everything that I've created from the Glam Witch. I mean, there's definitely times where I've experienced imposter syndrome and not known or not didn't want to necessarily believe in the goodness that I've done and, and all of that stuff. It's it's a it's a bitch <laughs> is what it is. But um, at the end of the day, I mean. I also thought, you know, when we were kind of mentioning that it's it's a, on a good note, she knew when to leave the party on time, you know, it's don't stay there all night long, you know, you get messed up, you know, go have some fun and then go home. Like there's, that's another part of glamour too. It's like creating an air of mystery, you know, um, that whole, oh my God, yes, I came, I enjoyed it, da, 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 and like running away. I mean, half of it is yes, because girl, your glamour about to wear off. You need to get home. <laughs> but um but uh, there is also that kind of idea of, you know, don't don't show all of your cards right away. Have a little bit of a poker face. Um, and there's an element to that in Glamour Magic as well, so. I love that. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> that was so funny. Like, create a sense of mystery. Oh, yeah, I came in here. I'm, I'm not going to give you my number. No, I'm not going to give you my Instagram. You have to wait for me till, uh, till I come tomorrow again. <laughs> but in the modern world, we we like, oh, my God, here's my number. When can, when can you married? What are we doing? Da, 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 da. Yeah. No, like, did the whole, like, okay, I came in. She created an <laughs> 
was the art of fascination, which is essentially glamour magic. Yes. So um, there is, and I, if I remember them correctly, and it's from um, Paul Houston's Mastering Witchcraft, she talks about the art of fascination. And it was something along the lines of capturing somebody with your gaze, um, breathing upon them, and then touching mm -hmm. them and like using it in a very systematic type of a, a way. And that's how you can have someone kind of fall for you in a way. Um, it's the art of creating or uh, influencing somebody with glamor. And I think that's something that she did so well here. I mean, she's she got his attention with the eyes, with the look, she's dancing with him. So touches there, they're close to each other. So the breath is there. And then she's like, oops, bye, I gotta go. Like, <laughs> like great, great aspect of glamor magic there. Love that. Uh, I'm going to be honest on my end, and and it's something that I keep repeating. I'm just starting, so my first spells were crap. Uh, so <laughs> I, I think that my are. my imposter syndrome was actually lack of results, and <laughs> so uh, I think that now that my results are starting to show. Uh, there is like a small voice that say, uh -huh, but you failed at the very beginning. And um, also like trying to dive onto content creation and social media, there is an element of, I have so much content to share. I have so much resources that I want everyone to get to know because I love them and they were helpful for me. And then I look at maybe my amount of followers and I'm like, mm, I'm not there yet. Should I start sharing all the good stuff now or should I wait till then? Um, I think that you did ask the uh, a question along these lines um, once in the group. And I feel that it's a very, very broad um, question that can change uh, according time. If anything, uh, my imposter syndrome as he now is my lack of experience. Uh, so, there is like a multitude of factors that can be taken in consideration for that in particular. Um, but on the other hand, I'm learning to be delusional, uh, you know, learning to be like, hey, this is what this is what it is. And we keep pushing forward, you know, so I guess that kind of answer the question. <laughs> well, and along that same lines, when I, I would say maybe 15 years ago, uh, I was given the moniker of the withered wise man. And of course, my first reaction was wise man. First of all, you don't know me that well, but you end up learning to walk in that. It's it's a part of, of learning more of who you are. And sometimes you have to have that put in front of you so that you have a goal to work for. Um, yes, I'm still learning every day the day I stop learning, I'm going to die. But am I the weathered wise man? I'm definitely weathered. But yes, I am a wise man. Because I have searched for the way of wisdom. And I strive for the way of wisdom. So as far as the imposter syndrome, it's more of learning to live with who you've been made to be or who you were created to be. Um, and with Cinderella, yes, she may have run away, but she also came back when it came time to try the shoe on. 
and the prince has to you know if if we were to imagine him putting the shoe on her he has to kneel down to put the shoe on her foot which means now we have the royalty bending to this woman who was you know who was an ashy dirty girl um there's so much bringing that up too with the prince something i caught which was interesting from like a gender perspective in the Grimm's fairy tale was just the fact that like he's listening to the birds right like he's listening to her familiars um the more of the the feminine aspect of like being connected to nature and not necessarily going that like stoic male logic route of like you know oh here are these girls and they're saying that they'll fit the shoe da 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 you know, so I, I thought that was an interesting take. And like towards the end of it, it's always it was like, you know, allowing her space and her sovereignty. Um, and uh, yeah, I liked that an angle of it a lot better than like the Disney version and stuff like that. Yeah. And if she represents, you know, like in a Jungian way, if she was if she was his deep self, like his his uh, unconscious anima, mm -hmm. the unhumane trap that he sends that he sets almost makes more sense because we know sometimes we have to coax elements of our personality or unconscious to come play, uh, coax aspects of our creativity to come play. Um, I, there's there's a lot of the story that we haven't gotten to yet, but I know um, I, I know we don't have much time left. So I wanted to ask you, Michael, if um, if you wanted to tell us a little bit about your 13 uh your 13 laws in glamcraft and how that could apply to just to the conversation we're having or if there's any other topics you'd like to bring up before we before we move oh, on tonight uh, yeah um okay so i'll try to i'll try to buzz through them kind of quickly but like you know <laughs> my first one is to always put yourself first and i think cinderella definitely kind of like did that she remained true to herself she didn't really waver at all and of course like you said like we have royalty bending towards her in some kind of a way like it so I, I definitely love that angle of it um and to embrace challenges and change so all of what cinderella was thrown at her was was challenges um and uh was able to kind of master them in a way that like or she she at least went through them with a certain air of grace um and wasn't afraid to kind of overcome these obstacles that are throwing that are being thrown at her um, also, I would say, like, the, the, my third one is, is that your intentions matter. And that's definitely kind of translated through her, um, you know, asking the birds, you know, asking her mother's spirit for um, the dresses and things along those lines. Then we have learn to conceal, which we kind of really just touched on where she's leaving the party. She's running away from it. Like, um, excuse me, she can't give herself fully in that moment. Um, partially because the glamour is about to wear off. But um, but then there's also that self-love is the law. And and that kind of, again, ties back to, you know, putting yourself first and owning who you are and remaining true to yourself at all costs. Um, one that kind of really, like, resonates with me with the sisters, at least, and even the mother is, so my sixth one is to release envy and conjure admiration. And so to me, they, their hatred towards this girl was just so envious. Like, they were so full of envy for her. And envy is such a toxic poison that can seep into your magic. Um, and so, again, she carried herself with such grace that she didn't have envy for these things. Um take care of yourself. Again, we can kind of use that angle of like, you know, she, she did what she needed to do to for herself. 
embracing nature that's there the whole time. I mean, she calls out to nature. She's asking for help for nature. The the birds are her her uh spirit her spirit guides essentially her familiars too. Um, to cultivate security, uh, that to me can be that could be even just the 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 conjuration of her dress, you know, and that glamour that made her feel secure in a ball. Um, that made her feel elegant, like she belonged in there. Um, invest in the details of things. I mean, that, again, could be conspired to, like, the dresses that she has there. Uh, and to have fun. Now, maybe she didn't necessarily... She did have a little bit of fun. She danced, She got to dance with the prince and, and have her night out with, with, you know, him and all of that good stuff. But I do think, kind of leaning into what you were saying, too, it, like, she could have maybe had a little bit more fun, and maybe there was a little bit of an imposter syndrome there, even though she was trying to conceal um, the glamour and the magic that she's she's conjured. Uh, and then another one is to be a sacred space. Um, and this one, I, I don't know if she necessarily was, like, I don't know if this really, like, super fits in, because what I try to say in this is, like, if you are going to be a temple, allow others to worship you, and kind of, well, no, I think in a degree it was, it was that, towards the end, she's, you know, now she has the prince, she got, like, kind of what she wanted, um, he ended up listening to her, listening to her guides, she ended up becoming that sacred space and elevating into, like, a higher feminine power status point, um, and then just living your life is the most powerful spell, and so uh, I don't think we need to kind of dig into that any more than than what's already here. But just, you know, with that, it's, just a, it's all about tapping into the magic of carpe diem and seizing the day. You want to go to the ball? Go to the ball. You want to try to squeeze your feet into some shoes that don't fit? I got to do it later tonight. I'm not cutting anything off, but it will be a little bit painful. Um, so just have fun. Um, live your life and, and um, do good by yourself. You know, treat yourself the way that you want to be treated. And... Uh, and that's one of the best glamours that she can ever do. Yeah, live your happily ever after. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that so much. I'm mad that I, look, I might have to use that. <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> it's yours. That's the 14th one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I know that was a that was a big ask right there. Um, and we can read more about that in Glamcraft, correct? Yes, and it's a limited edition print right now. It's it was only a two hundred copy run, hardcover, um, uh, like coffee table style book on glamour magic. The whole it's split into three parts. So the first part really tackles like the practical aspects of glamour, building that confidence, how to apply makeup if you're doing that, how to use cosmetics and and you know style your hair, your beards, all of that kind of stuff, and um, picking out clothing that works and and creating a persona. Then there's a whole second section, which is the glamoir, a glamour grimoire that actually incorporates a lot more of the magical practices, the spells, the potions, all of that type of stuff. And then I interviewed a couple of other witches within the community on different aspects of how they can use glamour magic, because I think because I, I'm always in sequency caftans and things like that, that sometimes people might mislead that that's what I'm trying to promote. But that's just my glamour. It's what feels good for me. So having these other individuals in here, we have like Elise Marie, who is the beauty witch, who talks about holistic beauty and how she can use the, the natural herbs within the world to, to create that beauty within herself. I have my friend Hunter Vane, who talks about glam, um, drag glamour and how he uses um, glamour magic to create these beautiful glam uh, drag portraitures. Uh, Raven Digitalis, who talks about goth craft and just, you know, makeup from a cis male perspective. Lilith Dorothy, who talks about voodoo and glamour. 
uh, Julia Helena Haddis, do we kind of construct a, a magical potion of, of glamour, a beautiful, lovely cocktail. And there's a mocktail component too, for those who don't drink. Uh, and Veronica Varlow, who talks about um, burlesque magic and uh, and also being a part of um, a Romanian chain of a line of witches. So it, it's um, it's available. You can find it on my website, www.theglamwitch.com. There's only a few left, so grab them while you can. Um, and that's my pitch. And that's your sixth book, is that correct? That's my the thing. I think so. And no, I think it's. <laughs> That's my seventh book, my seventh book. <laughs> okay, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I so, lose track of days. <laughs> I understand. You're always working on you're always working on new material. Um yeah. thank thank you so much for being here. Do you want to do you want to plug anything else besides uh besides the book before we close out? Um I uh again I just got back from Hexfest. It looks like I'll be a presenter again next year. If anyone wants to kind of know about that, it's a it's a beautiful magical festival that takes place every year in New Orleans in August, hosted by Christian Day and Brian Kane. Um, has presenters from all over the world showcasing different types of magic. Um, and uh, right now, until the end of September, there's an early bird discount, so you get $100 off your ticket. So very, very worth it. Um, and uh, the code, um, I, I posted it on social media and stuff like that. So just look around. Um, I want to say it's like early bird 2024 is the is the discount code for them. But check it out. It's a really great time. You get to be so immersed in such a wonderful place. It's it's where I went to for the first time back in 2017 and was just so inspired and really is what created the Glam Witch, the author that's here talking to you today. So um, if you need some inspiration or just kind of want to see some other witchy people and, and live in a world uh, or an environment where you don't have access to that, it's a wonderful trip to try to, to book. And so um, especially with that discount code right now. So you're very working. I'm working on a book for Llewellyn. It should be coming out sometime next year. So Keep an eye on that and all my social medias and stuff like that for for all of those details. Will do. Thank you so much for being uh, for sharing your craft with us, for being patient through all the technical difficulties. Oh, and Mercury is in retrograde. You know, she's a monster, or he, Mercury. <laughs> and um, I know we've we've talked about maybe another project coming up. So hopefully, we'll be seeing you again here in the circle. Absolutely. Ab. What would you like to tell guests about where they can find you or anything else that you'd like uh, them to know about before we close out tonight? Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, as I have already mentioned, I right now starting to dive into content creation. Uh, on my social media, most likely I will be uploading uh, different tips, especially for new beginners, the tips that I wish that I could have received on my end, uh, but again, I was trying to land by myself, so that on that. So yeah, everyone can find me on AB Witch Journal, uh, both YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. I think that those are my three uh, main social media. Follow me, like, comment, give me book recommendations, and if you have a particular question and something that I might be able to answer, I definitely I will I can help you with that. If not, I probably will send, send a message to Aaron or Dave. Hey, uh, someone asked this, and I have no idea what this is. Uh, but yeah, maybe with your know all social medias. Thank you. Dave, also, where can people find you, and do you have anything you want them to know about? You can find me on all social media, well, most social media. Facebook is the Weathered Wise Man. Uh, Instagram, weathered underscore wise man underscore real. Um, 
I've got a book coming out early of 2024, The Simple Magic of Wild Things. Um, and I had I got a couple of ancestry projects in the works. Um, the first I presented at Mystic South, um, Meeting Your Ancestors Where You Are. And the other one is essentially working with ancestor magic through your trauma. Um, so got a couple of good projects coming up. Um, and we'll probably be building a Patreon page before too long. Wow. Are those um, those topics that you brought up at Mystic South, are they going to be uh, the private courses that you teach or? They will be courses that I'll offer through Patreon. And I've also been invited to a couple of conferences early next year that I'll pre be presenting there. Um, and hopefully again at Mystic South. But um, yeah, they'll they'll be available and I will be offering at some point recorded versions of them. Great. Great. So and for people to get a taste of the work on ancestor working with ancestors um, to heal trauma, we'll get a taste of that in a future episode where we talk about Cinderella's ancestor work at her mother's grave and they can find out a little bit more about what they'll be learning in the course. Definitely. Great. Until we all meet again, may all your journeys be filled with wonder. <laughs>